Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm one of the hosts here on the podcast. And this week, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson as he interviews associate pastor Lloyd Biddle about his testimony. In this testimony, Lloyd is going to talk about how God has worked in his life, how he brought him to himself, how he brought him through adolescence and into marriage, then into business, and from there into pastoral ministry. So hopefully this will be a way to encourage you as you look at how God works in the midst of somebody's life. And plus, it's just a way to get to know Lloyd a little bit better. Take a listen. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. We have with us Pastor Lloyd Biddle today. He's the senior associate pastor at High Point. He's one of our elders. He's been serving at High Point since before I was here, was on the search committee that hired me. So you can hold that against him. And so we have periodically, we haven't done this for a while, but we've periodically done a testimony interview with staff members. So you can feel like you can get to know their spiritual life and spiritual histories a little bit better. So... No, it's good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Lloyd, everybody knows that you started out at a very young age in the state of infancy, but Mm -hmm. why don't you give a little background of where you're from? Um, So I grew up uh, uh, in Chicago in the Wrigleyville area. That's where my my parents settled and they were married, lived in an apartment building uh, there. And and it's a really interesting uh, story that has been passed down is that when my when my uh, mom was young and uh, she and my dad were beginning to have children um, she was kind of a working mom and my dad was was you know uh, hard-working kind of laborer and uh, they just needed some help and the Catholic nuns uh, from the parish around her were very helpful and in particular there was a sister Renee that kind of just uh, just took my my mom in and and then helped her and you know watched the kids and was a great blessing to her and um, though my mom was a a Baptist uh, from the South uh, she decided to have all five of her kids um, baptized and uh, raised Catholic and so the, imagine this Baptist mom and, uh, and my dad who'd also been raised in the church but was not a real believer. Uh, but my mom just decided that we were going to be uh, raised in this parish on the, on the north side of Chicago. And um, so I was uh, baptized as an infant. I was uh, confirmed uh, in middle school-ish, late middle school. And uh, uh, from as, as long as I can remember, uh, I could be found at a Catholic mass. Uh, later, my parents uh, bought their first home in the Austin community, and we were part of the Resurrection Parish which at that time was becoming pretty much an all black kind of Catholic community in school and parish. That's, I mean, that is not what people expect stereotypically and demographically. Yep. When they go, Oh, you're African American, you're a Christian. Yep. You must have been a, and they would not say Roman Catholic yeah. from the South side of Chicago. Or West side in my case. West yeah. side. Yeah. So, and also we've established that mm-hmm. you cannot be faulted for being a Cubs fan. That's right. Cause I they are your cradle hometown team. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, uh, Ernie Banks might as well be my, uh, my, my godfather in terms <laughs> of uh, just being a, a Cub fan. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of my Christian heritage. And so, and so you went to private. I went to Catholic, Catholic schools, schools from uh, from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, and then after eighth grade, I was headed to a Catholic high school in Oak Park, Illinois, named Fenwick. But at the last moment, there was another private school in uh, in the, on the near north side of Chicago that uh, that offered me a scholarship to come. And so for the same price that I was going to end up paying to go to Fenwick, which was about a thousand dollars a year, which was a lot of money in uh, 1978, but for the same cost, I was going to go to this other uh, school. And I kind of liked it because uh, Fenwick was at the time was all boys and this other school had girls. So that was a feeling. And so, um, yeah, so I ended up going to uh, there for for uh, for high school. But all the while I was a, a member at a resurrection church and I could be found 
most uh, Sundays uh, at mass, 11 o'clock mass, uh, from age, you know, from a baby all the way into till the time I went to, to college. And these were fairly vibrant Catholic yeah, parishes. I would say that these were vibrant Catholic ch- uh, churches. Uh, the the priest, uh, I had long tenured uh, priest, uh, Father Phelan, probably from when I was born to about high school. Then Father Flynn, who was his main assistant, he took over as senior pastor. So these were these were godly men. Now, I know that um, in some evangelical circles that uh, Catholics kind of get a bad rap for the theology and some other things. But these were godly men uh, that uh, walked in tremendous integrity uh, that uh, that really blessed uh, my family. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I owe a great uh, debt of gratitude to Resurrection Church and the pastors and the nuns that came alongside my parents and helped me grow intellectually. And though I, I can't say that I came to faith in Christ there, because I didn't, mm-hmm. I certainly was introduced to the scriptures and to and to a, a, a good morality. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you didn't get the wound of being repulsed by hypocrisy. Absolutely not. You, I mean, you felt like these were godly men. In fact, one of the reasons I never really even uh, rarely went into a Protestant church was because the churches that surrounded my parishes, I could see certain hypocrisies. Like I would, I would walk by the buildings and I would see parking spaces for pastors. And then I would see these Cadillacs and I'd see these luxury automobiles. And then I think about the pastors at my church who drove, you know, Chevrolets that barely got around, who ate, who lived in a, a rectory, but who ate and lived modestly. Didn't, didn't own their homes. Didn't own their homes and were, yeah. were, were modest. Didn't, that, that, this didn't seem to affect them. They, they weren't covetous for more, mm-hmm. you know. Were those priests African-American? No, these were Irish. Both, both, they both, were both Irish? and Flynn were. Like were, American were, Irish? Were American Irishmen, which, <laughs> which, you know, coming out of Chicago was pretty prevalent, pretty normally, actually. Yeah. But g- godly men. In fact, uh, when I got married... And not real old when you knew them. They were like middle Father, aged. Father Phelan, the first pastor, probably was in his sixties. Okay. Uh, but Father Flynn, when he became the senior pastor, he was probably late forties. But and you had already known him. He was an assistant before yeah, that. I known him for years. So yeah. you saw him like so they in the had prime long tenured his... pastors. Pastors. Yeah. 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 Which, was there also like only certain churches were in those neighborhoods? Were, in terms were most of, of the churches predominantly black? Yeah, so the, the neighborhood, like many uh, of the uh, neighborhoods in Chicago, just gradually became all black over time. So Resurrection Parish had been an Irish, had been a kind of a European neighborhood, but after the 60s, there was a flight towards the western suburbs. And mm-hmm. so it, it was, the, the funniest thing was I went to work for American Family and there was an agent who was 20 years older than me. And we got to talking about our background. And I found out he went to the same high school that he knew Father Phelan, Father Flynn. He even went to the same high school that my brother went to, which was a, which was a feeder school from Resurrection. And so, but, but his family had kind of moved out moved. of the neighborhood. Yeah, but we still had, a, we had yeah. kind of an interesting background. So I, it was just interesting for me to, to realize. It is know, kind of wild how urban neighborhoods kind of evolve like that. I've heard a lot of stories about Washington, D.C. like that, that like there's been huge evolutions and it's very predictable. It's kind of like blacks moved in here and Russians moved in. Because people naturally move in these webs of relationships. And so it's not, sometimes it's segregated economically, but you know, not everybody knows about how how segregated Chicago seems when you go live there. Right. That you'll be like, I was in the northern suburbs, and you you drive out of like, um, like Lake Forest into Highwood, and it's like a hundred percent Hispanic, like in twenty yards. Right. And then you drive for one minute, and you enter Highland Park, and it's like eighty nine percent white and Asian, just right. like that. Right. You know, it's 
it's and then you go one suburb north of Lake Forest into like Waukegan or North Chicago, right. and it's eighty five percent black. Yeah, yeah, just like that. Right, right. Was it like that when you were a kid? So, the the city has these pocketed neighborhoods. They have uh, to to this day, it's gotten uh, less and less like that over the last twenty or thirty years. There has really been. There's more, there's more of a class distinction mm -hmm. than an ethnic distinction in Chicago. It's, it's slowly moved that way. But growing up, yes, you had black or Italian neighborhoods. You had Chinatown. You had Polish neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. so, was there some fun to that, like that you knew certain kinds of music would be in one place and certain kind of foods would be in others? Or did it feel like... It always felt weird, to be honest with you. And, and there, there were certain, as an African-American, you had to be careful because there were certain places that you weren't welcome and it could be dangerous. So, I so was I, surprised yeah. at that. I heard that at seminary yeah. with African-Americans that came to seminary who were like 40 and older. Yeah. They were like, hey man, I got beat almost right. to death by racists in right. Chicago. That's it right. wasn't in Alabama. There were certain neighborhoods you just could not. It wasn't safe for you to go. Yeah. So you just have to know that. But yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you went to high school. Yeah. And this was not a Christian school. No, but it was, was a, kind of an semi elite. Yeah, kind of a not semi elite, school. really elite private school. Um, uh, a, a lot of wealthy families on the, on, in Chicago and what is known as the Gold Coast. The school was located in the Gold Coast. Okay. Um, and so, but a really good uh, prep school. Uh, um, I had a great experience at the Latin School of Chicago. Not many people of, of color, but that was a good stretch for me since I had been K through uh, eight in pr pretty much all uh, African-American schools, although my, I had teachers that were that were white and, and so forth. But Were there students, a lot of black teachers, though, in those schools? Did yes, you have? Yeah, so I had, I had numerous, from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, more than half of my teachers were, were black. Usually women. Okay, and you hear about this like in a place like mm -hmm. Madison where they're trying to create better experiences yeah. for African-American Latino kids. And they're yeah. like, you got to get some black teachers. You got to yeah. get some Latino teachers. Can you reflect on that specifically in relationship to your experience of having had such teachers? Yeah. Did it feel like it was having an effect on you? Or when you look back, do you say, that really did matter for me to see people I thought of as educated and successful that... I racially identified with. Well, it just felt it just felt natural. Yeah. To have African American teachers. After all, I was in an African American neighborhood, mm -hmm. African American Catholic uh, church, <laughs> so it just was natural. And yeah. then when I went to college, when I went to high school, I think I had I had one African American teacher over the four years, and so it was my my gym teacher, and okay. and that that was different. But I think because uh, I was trying to learn how to navigate the different cultures, it was actually helpful for me mm. to go from an all-black um, area and school and so forth to a school that it had diversity. It was mostly, though, there, it was mostly Protestant and Jewish. So okay. out of my 60 classmates, there were probably at least 20 who were Jewish students and then 40 Protestants. So there was a different kind of diversity there that yeah. was enriching uh, to my experience. Yeah. So yeah. all this time you were going to Catholic mass yes, with your all mom? The, the whole time. And if people know me would have said, this guy is obedient to his parents, uh, uh, very moral, uh, what considers himself to Christian, you know, goes to church. Uh, problem is I didn't really have a relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that became really apparent when, when I went to college. But you didn't get in trouble? No. And was there a lot, were there a lot of drugs around when you were a kid? I mean, uh, my, my neighborhood was actually, I mean, if you, if you wanted drugs, but of course, moralism had kind of set in. And so yeah, I was, you know, rooted in, in righteousness from a, from a behavioral perspective. Mm -hmm. So there was just been, it would have been beyond the scope of my ability to be doing even smoking a cigarette, let alone anything beyond that. So your religious upbringing, even yeah. though you'd say you didn't have a relationship with Jesus, right. did a lot for you. That's yeah. why you have a lot, so much respect for Roman Catholicism, though now you wouldn't necessarily agree with it theologically. Correct. That's right. Okay. That's right. All right. So then you graduated from high school. So went, uh, graduated from high school, went to college at the University of Illinois, and then, of course, didn't have 
parents yeah. that would, uh, in, in my case, my mom, that would encourage me towards, you know, um, going to mass and and um, uh, and then hearing the gospel at least as it was shared in the mass. And so I didn't. So for the, so for your the, mom didn't get on your back about that. No, oh, she really didn't. And would you encourage parents when their kids go off to college oh, to get yeah, on probably their back good, about it? It'd probably be a good thing to do. <laughs> uh, my, my mom was still had three kids in the, her home at that time. Plus, I think she had two grandchildren. So she was swamped. So <laughs> what would you say about your didn't. mom in your spiritual preparation? Then? Would yeah. you say that she kind of entrusted it to the church and felt like the church was yeah. doing it? I would say, yeah. So my mom has, uh, has a sixth grade education. So she was a sharecropper when her parents came from Mississippi, from rural Mississippi to Chicago in the late 30s, early 40s. So she, she stopped going to school at sixth grade in order to participate and take care of her family and so forth. So she's not an educated woman. So my mom, for instance, my mom never read a book to me in my life. But okay. I was fortunate. My dad had a pretty good education. And then my brother, my brother was brilliant. My older brother was brilliant. And so I had enough support around me in the home. But, you know, so I... I, I was not uh, I was not nurtured by an educated mom. So although did your dad? Have, she was very godly. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Did your dad have a strong faith? No. So my dad basically, uh, I think, based on intellectual reasons, objections, re rejected the faith. So his parents, his mom in particular, nurtured him uh, in um, kind of a Pentecostal background, and my, and my dad just didn't believe. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you had been inculcated in Christianity. Yes, from a from from my youth. But the Christianity hadn't been articulated into you so that you understood how it functioned and yeah. how to believe it. And then you had the testimony, not just of your mom's godliness, but right. of your dad's non-belief. Non-belief, yet really strong. My dad was a very family-oriented guy. So very loyal. There was never a day that my dad didn't come home. You know, yeah. some people can say that, you know, their dads were drunks or their dads would be. My dad was at home. My dad went to work. My dad saved his money. My dad took care of his mother and his sister because mm -hmm. they lived in the house. We were in a two flat. He took care of his family. So from my dad, I learned how to be responsible. So whereas I didn't learn a, a godliness in a, in a spiritual perspective from Christ, I learned responsibility of manhood from my dad, mm -hmm. who was always there for his family, for me, my whole life. Uh, just did not have faith in Christ. Just and I've seen that. Like, my dad was actually kind of like that. Yeah. Non-believing for intellectual reasons, yeah. extraordinarily moral, yeah. and a good family man. That's right. right. That's and right. I have seen that lead people away from faith and to faith. Because you can say, my dad was a good man, yeah. didn't believe any of this religious stuff. I right. don't have to believe any of this. Right. right. But I've also seen people say be brought up to be a good person Yes. and then say, why the heck am I being a good person? Right. At which point they say, well, maybe I'm going to be a bad person. They were like, well, I don't really don't want to do that. I, I'm supposed to be a good, this could be a good person. I just wish I had a reason to be a good person. Right. And then they start thinking it through and they're like, well, it's, it's because God tells me to be a good career. He made the world this way. He's right. made me to bear his image. Oh, there's all these. And then it actually right. can lead you to faith. That's right. So in fact, I think that was kind of like that for me. Cause I, I didn't want to be a terrible person. Right. And I think my dad helped inculcate that in me. Yeah. And I think that led me to Christ. Partly. Partly. Amen. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you went to college. You're fighting a lion eye. Yeah. You're the big I man went to on college. And, um, and, and of course, this is where when you're outside of your, your parents' homes, then the temptation to do what 18, 19-year-olds do uh, when they are, uh, are starting to become independent, you know, they... They go to parties. They are introduced to alcohol. They are. Uh, they begin to have. If they haven't uh, had interactions with with women, and I, 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 you know, dated a few girls in school, but had barely kissed a girl by the time I left high school. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they begin to, you know, take seriously dating and horizontal they, relationships with women. Yes, they begin to, and so and so I I I, I did I did um, that. You know, I joined the fraternity and um, uh, socially active and started. I had my first girlfriend my soft my my second semester of high school, and that was when I lost my virginity, and um, that started really. Um, that started really a series of really bad and really inappropriate women relationships with with women. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you get that car in gear, yes, that's like, right. If you don't goes. know the right thing to do, I mean, like, I I knew morally it was wrong to have sex before marriage because I had been in church my whole life, mm-hmm. so I knew it was wrong. But I certainly didn't have the Holy Spirit as a guide to. To, to assist <laughs> during some of those rugged yeah. years. And so, and so, yeah, I, you know, girlfriend to girlfriend and that, that kind of thing. And uh, probably one of the areas where the providence of God was really operating is that I met my wife, Deborah, uh, who did know the Lord when I was in college, but we didn't. She was a couple years older and we never dated. And I really now, looking back, see God's hand all over that. Because that, if I, if if she and I had got connected, that would just been another in a, of a series of kind of failed relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the blessed part of that was that uh, Debbie and I didn't really start dating until the point I really had come to terms with uh, my sin and really come to understand what Christ and and um, what salvation was was about and. Uh, so, so went to went to a, a college, uh, I graduated, um, uh, took a job working for a bank in Chicago. Uh, was was living in an apartment with my older my older brother and I moved away from, out out from our home, and we're in an apartment, and we're still having these bad relationships. And I was like, I just remember just feeling bad. Nick, I was driving home from work one Sunday, one day, and I and I just felt bad. I mean, I knew what I was doing was wrong. By this time, I was two girls. I didn't know about each other you know, uh, doing stuff I had no business doing, knew better. And I just had this conviction. And this is, this is where the Holy Spirit, I could feel uh, him uh, operating in my life. Just had this terrible conviction. And I had this feeling, I had this feeling of hopelessness. And mm-hmm. then I remembered um, at going to Mass and the, con- the communion rite, and uh, uh, Father Phelan or Father Flynn, when they would get to communion, they would uh, say, um, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, uh, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which was we've given uh, for you. When supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave him thanks and praise, gave the cup to his disciples and said, uh, take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. Uh, this, this blood is shed for you and for all men so that sins can be forgiven. Now, I, uh, you know, do this in memory of me. And I'm telling you, Nick, I had heard that since I was an infant. Every so, right? single I had mass. Every, every mass. Most of the prayers and rituals I knew by memory. Mm-hmm. Problem was, I didn't, I, I didn't understand and apply them to me. Right. So I had this moralism, and I thought I was a good person, but my college experience showed me that I wasn't. Yeah. So I went to college thinking I was a good person. I, you know, I, I went to church, and I knew the difference between right and wrong. And yeah, I might do a little this or that. I might lie a little, and I might swear a little. But, but you're I hardly was hurting person. anyone. Yeah, I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah. And then I got to college, and I, I started to see I was hurting everybody. I was hurting people, mm-hmm. and I was hurting myself. Mm-hmm. And I was continuing this in a way that was getting out of control. And that's when the Holy Spirit stepped in and reminded me uh, uh, that I understood the gospel. That was just enough gospel that on that car ride home, I confessed that I was a sinner and, uh, um, and confessed uh, um, uh, Christ as Lord. And I went <laughs> and ended the relationship with both of these girls. And I called them up and I said, hey, you know, I, I just can't, this isn't good. I just can't do it. And that was the beginning of a new life for me. And I wish I could tell you it was, you know, from one victory to another, but it, it wasn't. But there was a marked 
change. That confession in that car, uh, there was a new Lloyd Biddle that understood the power of God, that understood the reality of the Holy Spirit, that then intuitively, could, intuitively, and then that when when now read the Bible, could actually understand the Bible. And so the Holy Spirit had done so much just in that short period of time. Was reading the Bible encouraged in your Catholic parish? No. And so, no. So you picked that up somewhere. Yeah. So were you still it, here's so you how were I picked out of it up. college? Here, here's how I picked it up. So wait, wait, uh, can we go back to something? Uh, before oh, sure, before? sure, sure. So sure. Um, Debbie has had a couple from Illinois come and sing here. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. were they mentors of yours when you were still in college or did that happen so, after you graduated? So, um, are we going to come Ollie to Watts them in Davis, due course? Ali Watts Davis, who is still the director of the Illinois black chorus was a mentor, was a direct hands-on mentor of Deborah. Of Debbie. So Deborah joined the choir and literally hung out at her house and, and with her husband, um, uh, Harold Davis. And so she, she would babysit their children. They were friends. They went to the same church. Um, so another the, good example of a young person getting mentored. Oh, huge. So Deborah would, would tell you that Ali has probably been her most effective uh, mentor. And really all, all Ali did was allow her to come into her house and watch the good and the bad and the ugly of her being a young mom at that time in her late 20s, right? Just and trying Debbie to raise was, family. Debbie would have been, you know, 18, 19, 19 20, 20 that kind of thing. And so you know, Ollie Watts Davis would have been like She'd 27, been like 20, 26, 20, 27. She was working so on... not much older at all. Her PhD. She was working on her master's and PhD, which she oh, finished wow. in performance, in music performance. Oh, so, so, so not... Much different. Yeah, five, six, seven years older, Good. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Deb would have had that grounding, and uh, so she would have went from her church at home to a church in in Madison, which is in in Champaign, which is what you want for your kids, right? You want mm -hmm. your kids to have a church home where they grew up, and then you want them immediately to go to a, a church, a good church in where they go to school, and so she had that. Um, that background, but I, but I didn't. So anyway, yeah. about this so, time. Okay, Lloyd, we should hit this. Sure. So anybody who's listening who's a parent or is going to be going mm -hmm. to college soon, this is very critical. So as you want your student to understand, or if you're a student, what you need to understand is you need to do this your first day or first week on campus. Yeah. You need to believe that if you don't get connected to the Christian body and in worship within seven days, yeah. it is highly likely you won't and don't think you're special. You're not. If you do, things will go pretty well. If you don't, it's, you're going to fall into the culture that will be around you, which will be a culture of God denying philosophy and physical licentiousness with no accountability. And when those three things come together, they are the death of 18 year old faith. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, go on. No, that's for sure. About this time, um, um, when I first got back from college, I knew Deborah and I and I liked her. Um, and I, I I ended up visiting her in her apartment, and we just really we just had a really bad conversation. Uh, uh, um, you know Ed Copeland. You've heard the name Ed Copeland. I know Ed. Yeah. Ed and my wife used to date. Oh. And yeah. And um, so this their relationship was ending. Um, uh, Ed, I think, had been to California and finished his MDiv. Yep, was back in town, and th their relationship was ending. So when I visited, she was kind of in a, at a tail end of a relationship, so it, it just was a bad time, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't think anything of it. I thought, I thought when I first went, I said, like, man, this could be something. And then when I left, I was like, oh, this is nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so right after I have this experience in salvation, my, uh, my, uh, my wife, soon, now my wife, uh, Deb, Deb calls kind of out of nowhere. And it was during the summer, and she said, hey, Lord, I, I just, you know, just saw you. You were on my mind. I just called just to see how you were doing. And I was like, I'm, do, I'm doing fine. We have a good conversation. And I asked her out for a date. And she uh, and she agrees. So she called you up. Yeah. And she called you me asked her, and I asked her out for a date. You got to take advantage just of that. Just like she this. planned it. Yeah, probably. So when iron is hot, you got to strike. So right. anyway, so we start dating. 
Now, wait, let's stop again, Lloyd. Yeah. If you like a girl and you're a single guy and she's a Christian and you want to ask her out, ask her out. (laughs) Man, it's just so many guys. Listen, it's not a social offense. You're not Bernie Weinstein or Harvey Weinstein. If you ask out a girl politely and she says, no, it's not a sexual offense. Right. If you're a guy, you're supposed to ask girls out. There's nothing in the Bible that says a girl can't ask a guy out. But generally speaking, it's best if you say, hey. Would you like to get together? We just have that problem sometimes with the 20 somethings where yeah. they just aren't going for it. And you yeah. got you to ask them out. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. I was still in the, in the, in the era where guys ask girls out in the eighties. I think things changed in the nineties and two thousands, but, but I asked her out and, uh, we, we went on a date, had a good time. Um, Deborah was uh, still active in church, but also, uh, active in Christian music. So she was singing with two Chicago mass choirs. So if I was going to date her, I was going to be going to concerts and, you know, and to church on Sunday. And, and it was really through Deborah that who spurred in me a real interest in, um, in studying the scripture. And so she had, she knew the scripture and I was eager and um, so, so, so through dating her and just going to church with her, I began to take more of an interest in reading uh, the word of God. And as we started getting close to the point where we wanted to get engaged, several of our f- friends were getting engaged. And we had a couple's Bible study. And these were all like Christian who so were uh, engaged or considering getting engaged. And we were all ignorant, but we thought we could study passages on the Bible. So for you're like know, 24, I'm probably 23 ish, 23 now, okay. 23, 24. And we're, we're studying the Bible. And years later, that it was about 10 couples. Only one of those 10 couples that was in that study has gotten divorced. Wow. One out of 10. So the Holy Spirit was doing something in the midst of that. How long did you guys, were you that, together? That group met for probably like 18 months. Okay. Yep. So we were all, then when it came to getting married, we were all in each other's uh, weddings and so forth. So, um, so I asked my wife to marry me, and I think it was 1988. We were engaged for about a year. We were, in, we were married in May of 1989, strangest marriage. Uh, we got married at her church. Deborah was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in her hometown of Waukegan, Trinity AME. And her pastor and Father Phelan co-officiated our service. Whoa. Can you believe that? That was not common. That was not common. That's not common now. It's not common now, but it was a wonderful service. Mostly Methodist, mostly a Methodist service. And, and with a scripture reading by Father uh, uh, F- uh, Flynn, Father Flynn. I can't think of it. Was, it was a really precious, it was a really precious uh, time. Anyway, when we wow. got married, we were at a Catholic church for two, three years. And this is what led me away from Catholicism. There is a, a bishop who I know whose name is. He was a priest at the time. I'm not going to mention his name. Godly good man. But I was beginning to read the scripture, especially around salvation and how one came to be saved and how one persevered in the faith. And I had a meeting with him and we went through some seminal texts in Paul's writings. Uh, take Ephesians chapter one, verses one through 16, where it talks about how you can be, how you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit, that God had called you and that there was a certainty. And I went and I talked to my priest about it. And, and he was like, Lloyd, you know, Paul can know that he's saved, but you can't. And it, and it just, even then, though I had a very rudimentary understanding of scriptures, it just didn't line up with what I was, had been studying, right. this whole notion of how one is to be saved. It wasn't dependent on my righteousness. It was dependent on God's righteousness. And indeed, I did have to walk in the scriptures, but my salvation was something that God did, and, and including my security. And I couldn't, I couldn't resolve myself with his theology. Anyway, yeah. this particular priest got promoted, and at that time, um, my wife and I decided that we needed to look for another church. Now, this is when uh, uh, the, the Davis family comes into, into play. By this time, I'm talking to Harold Davis by phone, and I'm telling him about my, my salvation experience, and what he told me gave me the best, some of the best advice I ever got. 
He says, Lord, you need to be baptized upon your own confession of faith. I was like, oh, my God. I said, my mom's not going to like this because, you know, she got us baptized in this church. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And she, and when I told her about it, she was offended. I, I, I've now counseled enough people and, and they've had similar experiences when they've come back to, to say to their parents to tell them that they've decided to do, do something else. Uh, in their religious experience that that was different than what they were raised in. Right. And some of the parents are wise enough to kind of go along with it, but almost all of them are somewhat offended, right? right? So my mom was too. It feels like a repudiation. It does. It does. It yeah. does feel like that. Nonetheless, uh, uh, Harold Davis gave me this advice. I prayed on it and it felt like the right thing to do. So my pastor got promoted to bishop. We left the Catholic church went to a Protestant church not too far from where we were living. We were living in Westchester. We went to a, joined a new congregation, and I got baptized upon my own profession of faith. Uh, this would have been whew, in the 90s. This would have been probably 94, 95, somewhere around there. Okay. And Nick, uh, some people get baptized, and they'll tell you it had no effect on their Christianity. Mm -hmm. In my case, it had a dramatic effect. It did. So I think that step of obedience, though I know for a fact that that God, I, I was I was saved through my confession of faith, and there was a spiritual change that was undeniable. There was a regeneration that was undeniable. When I took that step of obedience, God began to use me in ways that He hadn't before. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, and so at, at this new church I was at, my wife and I were put in church in charge of the married couples ministry. We did that for a number of years. We ended up uh, moving um, uh, from where we were living in Westchester to Gurney. And at that particular church, I received a call to the preaching ministry. That church licensed me as a minister and gave me my first preaching opportunities. And, and so, um, so, so that, that ha being baptized in Christ's name had a, were, were some of the earliest steps towards uh, the ministry that I have now mm -hmm. took place. That so I would I counsel everyone take that step of obedience. I do believe in believers' baptism. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I was baptized as an infant. I was confirmed as an infant, but I didn't know Jesus. And I know this isn't everybody who was, was baptized as an infant or confirmed. This isn't their experience, and I, and I do get that. Right. In my case, I just didn't know him, and I needed to take that step of baptism. So it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I, th I think that part of the issue here is that Baptists and other people mm -hmm. who are Christians just don't have the same baptism theology. Yeah. And so um, yes. people who in the high church traditions, they just don't believe in rebaptism. That's and right. You just don't do that. That's and, right. And if the only time you'd get rebaptized is if you were baptized in a openly heretical or apostate group. Right. And so in their mind, if you get baptized on your own profession of faith, right. you're not just doing baptism right, according to the Bible. Right. You are claiming that their tradition is apostate. Right. Because in their baptism theology, if you get rebaptized, that's what you're doing. Right. That's right. Whereas in Baptist theology, it's just like, no, like baptism is to be baptized in the name of Christ on yeah. your own profession of faith. Yeah. And if that wasn't part of what was done to you that was called baptism, That's right. it's not a baptism. That's right. And, and you need to be baptized. And even as I still now read, the, the book of Acts is probably the best book to read that, that affirms it. But that's pretty much the clear pattern. They heard the gospel. They repented and believed. They got baptized. They heard the gospel. They repented and believed. They got baptized. Mm -hmm. And so so I, I followed that pattern once I, well, late to the party. <laughs> yeah. And I don't see but, any evidence yeah. in the Bible, right. you can comment on this if you want, right, sure. that the practice of that right. event, if you're doing it, right. Go ahead. is this fulcrum of damnation and salvation, no. like some of the high church talk about it. Right. They talk about, like, if you read the Bible and you read what it says about sex, like there's a lot of stern language about that and right. greed yeah. and disobeying your parents. Right, that's right. But like hardly, I mean, it says you need to be baptized. It does. But like it doesn't ever say anything like about consequences. if you do it wrong that's or if right. you get rebaptized. That's like, right. It just that's doesn't, right. talk, it doesn't like talk like that. About that. That's true. And so the church and church history has talked like that. But that's part of being a 
biblical Christian, mm. that all of church history has to be sifted through mm. the sieve of the Bible again. Mm. And even very venerable people mm-hmm. who have said things that don't seem to align with the Bible mm-hmm. have to demonstrate that they're biblical. You just didn't understand it. Or they follow very reasonably from the biblical text. Right. And I just have never been able to see that with the Catholic view of baptism. Right. You know? Yes. So, um, so, um, God, at this time, God was doing a, uh, a work in my life and I was, uh, uh, serving in the church, uh, leading ministries, uh, uh, preaching essentially the work of an elder, uh, starting in the late nineties up till the current day, essentially. And, um, and as you know, Raising children, uh, uh, sinning, repenting, (laughs) (laughs) continuing again. Uh, You were working in business. Yeah, I was working in in, in insurance business for for many years. Career going really well. That's what brought me to Madison. I came to Madison to to take a, um, because I had really kind of raised, went as far as I could uh, outside of the headquarters. So came to Madison, worked in marketing, uh, then worked as a director in a life company, um, joined High Point Church within months. We started started coming to High Point. Uh, the, I visited two church, three churches here, and ended up joining and uh, joining High Point, and have stayed here the whole time. So that would have been two thousand and six. It's yeah. two thousand and eighteen. So I've been here that whole time. Twelve years. Twelve years. Twelve years. So yeah. you came. This was Bill Mugford near the very me. end of Bill Bill Mugford's. Tenure as pastor, and so yeah. we went from Bill Mudford a short period with interim Ridley Usherwood. Then we have Bill Birch. So, so you came when things were bad at High Point. Yeah, but you didn't necessarily I know, didn't know that. I'll be honest with you. You're like they have it, a pretty big building right. for how many people are here. I didn't know behind the scenes. Church yeah. did a good job of sheltering new people from some of the stuff. That it seems that there. way. I've talked to people who weren't that involved. It right. seemed like it was like the elders who were right. leaving. The, yeah, and that's right. the people and some in the congregation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So you, you had two boys. Yes. You, you lost a daughter. I did. I did. We, we, uh, after Debbie and I got married in 89, uh, three months later, she got pregnant. And then three months into the pregnancy, four months into the pregnancy, she actually delivered, um, a child, Christian Nicole. And, uh, for maybe, maybe Christian maybe was four months. Um, now the medicine and technology is such that she might stand a fight, fighting chance at four, four months. But then there was really no chance. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's that was tough. Now. That was tough. That was by Did far that change your faith a lot or your marriage a lot? I mean, I'm assuming it must. I mark my, my progression as a man, not when I got married. But when I buried Christian Nicole, is it because you knew that if you could survive this, you were the real deal? It was so hard. Um, I remember coming home from the hospital to our apartment we were living in. I think we were living in River Forest, Illinois at the time. And I remember my wife saying when when we were walking from the parking lot to the apartment, she said. I don't want to go in there without my baby. Yeah, it was it was a bad time. And so I think I might have took off two or three days from work and Debbie was probably off a couple of couple of weeks, maybe three weeks or so. And uh, it was a difficult time. But God really uh, ministered to us th- through that time. Um, uh, I remember the texts that we read when we buried Millie and uh, some of those texts. And it was First uh, Corinthians about this, this mortal must take off mortality and this immortal must, you know, must come to fore. And death, where is your sting? That, that, that I, need, I, I quickly got a sense for the eternal that this life was not all that there was. So I was a young man, I was 24, 25 years old, 
And yeah. the weakness of youngness is you don't think about death. When you're 24, yeah. 25, you think you got, you think you can go on forever. But then when you see a baby die, all of a sudden your mortality is front and center. And so I needed to, to God gave me a vision for eternity that it was good for a 24 year old man to get. Yeah. And, uh, and the same thing with, 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 with Deborah. There's just, so um, Deborah's sister Karen really ministered to her heavily during that time, it was very helpful. She had some good friends that also kind of stepped in. Uh, I didn't have a lot of good friends to, to help me through. God was really just uh, patient with me to help me get through that difficult period. But yeah, yeah I, now I, I have to admit, I don't have any bitterness over that. I really just, you know, I, I know enough to know that, uh, you know, some of the life and death things we enter, you just don't fully understand. Uh, but God was, has been good to, uh, to us, um, uh, getting us through that difficulty, us having two additional sons over the years. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Difficulty, but, but I, I mark a real sense of maturity from that. Uh, my, my father-in-law uh, is not one for paying a lot of compliments, but when Deborah was in the hospital and over that 24, 48-hour period going through labor, and when he watched how we walked through it, his respect for me went up like super high because he watched me love his daughter like he would have, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, every so parent is watching that. Yeah, yeah. I and there's deal with that. like you have to find this event when you're the husband. Yeah, where they go. Oh, okay, he's fine. Yeah, it took a long time for my in-laws. I think. Did <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, can be funny yeah. sometimes. So yeah, anything else you want to add? No. You, no. you did a master's degree over did, a long period of time? I did, I did a couple master's. I did an MBA at Kellogg and then uh, part-time, and then also at Wheaton College in theology. After having done some prerequisite courses at Moody, I think I had to take four or six classes at Moody before Wheaton would even let me in. That was really tough because I was my kids were young. Yeah. So it took me eight, nine years, but I paid for it all in cash. And uh, that was about as fast as I could do it. Did you think the whole time that you would vocationally transition into ministry? Or did you think, I'm going to do this, I'm going to have a ministry in my church, and we'll see? I had a sense, and I think it was from the Spirit, that at some point God might ask me to leave business to go into full-time ministry. And I knew I had to deal with it. I knew I, knew I had to make that decision before the opportunity would come up, I'd have to decide well in advance what I would do. Because I was in the kind of field where people made a lot of money and there was a lot of power. And, and, and that, that, that was just, you know, make a lot of money, get the promotion, uh, build, get, buy a big house, buy a big car. I mean, all of my peer group was doing that. And so get your it, kid on club sports. Yeah, teams. get your kids on club sports teams, the yeah. whole shebang. And so during the peak of this, uh, uh, Nick, I, 35, 36, I had to decide. I know I remember when it was. Um, there was a point in it was a point in, in my career at American Family where they restructured how my role was paid. And I was going to take a huge cut. But I could have avoided the cut if I was willing to move my family from its support network in Illinois and go to work for a buddy of mine, still with American Family in St. Louis. But he would have been able to keep my pay where it was because of because of his you know power dynamics. And as I prayed through it, I kept hearing God say, "No, no." And I was like, "No." I was like, "I said, Lord, you got to be kidding. Nobody in their right mind would would keep working for." You know, sixty, seventy thousand less dollars than they could. I was like, Lord, you got to be crazy, you know? like, right? But he was. But there, I had to really decide who was Lord, mm -hmm. whether my career ambition was Lord, and I was going to chase a buck, even if I was going to rip my family away from their grandparents, yeah. or whether God was Lord. Fortunately, I had enough <laughs> faith to stay put, and it was the right decision. So I stayed put. A couple of years later, I was moved to Madison. 
maybe the rest of the system after that. Yeah. What would you say to people who are very serious Christians? Yeah. And sometimes people think if you're a very serious Christian, you should be doing ministry. Yes. Like as a vocation. Yes. They have a job, right? And so they don't have a lot of time to do ministry. That's right. And they said, what should I, you know, what should I do? Should I stay in my job or should I try to become a pastor or something? Yeah. Uh, what would you tell them to f- discern? Yeah. What to do? I mean, I, first, I no. know you know enough to say being in ministry is not about being more committed to Jesus than other people. That's right. God really had to show me that. I got some not the best pastoring at a certain point in my Christian walk. Now, the pastor did the best he could, but he didn't really understand the, he didn't really understand that every Christian is in full-time ministry. If you read passages like uh, Colossians chapter three, you read all of chapter three, there's other places in, in Timothy's, in Paul's writings where it's really clear that you are, you do everything as onto the Lord, whether you're a slave or mm-hmm. free in full-time ministry or whatever your work, yeah. whether you're the boss or the, or the employee, it's all onto God. Right. So the scripture is really clear. You're on that. always showing the kingdom. You're That's making correct. the invisible visible. God needs and wants ministers in nursing and business and teaching just as much as he wants a handful of us, 1% of us or so to be in churches. Mm-hmm. So he's got all these Christians, right? He needs only a few of us to do what you and I do for a living. Right. The vast majority he needs out being everyday ministers in, in, in the neighborhoods and the workplaces where they are. Now, I had to learn that on my own. I, I didn't learn it at, at, at church. Now, I think we, we at High Point try to do a really good job of explaining to people that they are in full-time ministry, that they, there's no need for them to join us. If God calls you to go on a mission field or join a church, wonderful. But mm-hmm. if you're doing what you're doing, wonderful. You, you, we, we're all doing God's work. And uh, yeah. anyway, I, I had to come to that understanding on my own. And when I did, I realized that there were ministry opportunities, people to pray for, people to lead to Christ, people to, and Bible studies to be had at work. And so, and so I, I, as, as faithfully as I knew how to, I represented Christ in the workplace for many, many years. And I trust it was, I did it well, but I certainly did it intentionally. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have that kind of tension that a lot of people have, where they felt that their work wasn't important. I knew my work was really important. I, I felt, to be honest with you, I had, at one point I had 30 people who were, who were reporting to me. I felt like I was pastoring those people. Yeah. Spiritually, I, I felt the weight of that. And so, so I would say, don't feel, don't feel that your work doesn't have equal ministry value in the kingdom. That's a bad theology. Right. right? And once you get that straight, then you, I think you can make better decisions. So then on what principle would they say, I think I need to leave this job and to go into full-time ministry? Yeah, I, I do think God puts, uh, there's certain doors that he will open. Mm-hmm. There's, certain, there's certain mentors who will speak into your life. By the first one, doors opening, oh, you mean people will invite you to do things. Yeah, people will see things and opportunities will will open up for you to be able to minister in certain ways. And that's right? like an indication that maybe that, you have a gifting yeah. or what you're doing is anointed or that's right. whatever the language you'd use. It's yeah, effective. I would say a gifting and and and, God, and people can see that there's fruitfulness in this thing that you're doing. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think some combination of God opening opportunities, some sense that you're productive as you take advantage of those opportunities, some sense that there are other mature Christians around you that see what God is doing and can suggest that, Hey, you, yeah. uh, that sounds like, that looks like something you should do more of. Right. I think those would be certain affirmations that you would have in addition to kind of your own sense of what God is, is, is giving you in prayer. Yeah. And would you add that there are certain th- tasks that people in ministry have to do? It's like, it's like its own job description. Yeah. And you've got to like doing that stuff. If you don't like <laughs> studying, for example, right. being don't, a don't preacher. Go into don't go into preaching. If yeah. you don't like studying, to, to, to right. preaching is not for you. And if you don't like 
thinking really hard to make a thought clearer. Right. That's right. Your that's teaching's right. not for you. Right. You know, and it's, that's fine. Right. But there are certain tasks in ministry, like right. being around dying people and yeah. Yeah. wading into people's problems and trying to help them sort them out. And yeah. if you like, you got to like that kind of work. And if yeah. you don't, it's not fun. That's right. You know. That's right. Um, Some people just think it'll be like, they'll just be closer to God. I find it much more difficult to stay close to God in ministry. Have you found that? Like, oh, it's almost boy. easier to stay close to God when you did not it was, have I think it as a job. For me, it was different only because of the kind of work I was doing at American Family. Mm -hmm. For many years, not every year, but for many years, it was very consuming work. It was every month, every day, every week, every many hours. And so when I left the sales environment at American Family and, and became a pastor, part of the work of a pastor is that a pastor needs to spend some time studying. So, you know, e even during nine to five, they might find themselves spending some time reading God's word. So from that perspective, because of the kind of work I was doing before, my experience was I was a little, it was a little easier, for, at least in terms of studying the scripture, at least in terms of studying the scripture, it was a little easier for me to stay connected in that way mm -hmm. than it was when I was working for American Family. Okay, so yeah. we're, we're just about an hour here. Yeah. We need to wrap up. Let me, so let me ask you one final question. Sure. Given your story. Yeah. What do you feel like is an insight, a spiritual insight that God has helped you see that's partly related to your story, but like you find yourself saying all the time, it's like this insight that lots of people could use, but you kind of earned through grace over time. And you're like, I say this to a lot of people. I found it to be true. I've tested it over time. Something like that. Is there something that pops to mind? I know that's kind of a hard question. One of the realizations that I picked up uh, along the way um, on this Christian journey, especially after having to take that step of obedience to, um, to be baptized in my own profession of faith, and then watching God mature me as a husband and father and worker and so forth, uh, I have, have learned to take the, the great uh, commission and personalize it. Uh, well, long story short, uh, after a lot of soul search, searching, it became clear to me that my life needed to be about to learn, to do, and to teach. And that, that mission makes sense of my whole life. I won't ever take a, a job if it doesn't involve learning, obedience, and teaching. So everything I've done since I was in my 30s fits that. Mm -hmm. And I saw, I've had a lot of satisfaction in the various work, whether it was secular work or ministry work. It includes those, things, those three things. And so I have found my fulfillment in the Lord's Great Commission. If that's helpful to you, run with it. Good. It made a big difference for me when I was trying to figure out how do I make sense of all this busyness and all these pressures that I have? How do I make a life out of this? And then when I realized that that was kind of the big um, uh, thing that God was doing in me, it just made life so much clearer for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of us are disciples. We're always learning of Jesus. We're always obeying and we should always be making disciples. Yeah. And I think if you can figure, if you can tie your life's work into that, it would, it makes a difference for me. If it, could, if it would help you, praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really good too on our staff team to have the diversity of like somebody like me, who's just been kind of like a lifelong scholar. Like I had a few jobs that weren't church jobs, mm -hmm. but I got into grad school, got into ministry. Yeah. And then I have you on our staff team who worked in the business world for longer. Um, 
I just think that helps even things out a little bit. So if you're in that situation where you, you work your nine to five and you have a lot of responsibility and you're trying to sort that out, Lloyd's a great guy to talk yeah. to because he, he did that for that. a long time. So I hope this has blessed you. Uh, I hope you. this makes you feel like you know Lloyd a little bit better. We find that the more you feel like you know your pastor too, the, the more open you are to their preaching. So hopefully this helps you listen to Lloyd better when he preaches. And um, I hope God uses it in your life. God bless you.